Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today we'll be talking to Nicholson Baker about his book, Substitute, Going to School with a Thousand Kids. Nicholson, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me on the show. I'm wondering if we can start the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Well, I'm a writer. I have written professionally since I was, uh, I guess, uh, about 30 years old. I've written 16 books, some novels, some nonfiction, a a book about the beginnings of the Second World War, a book about the history of libraries, some novels that are sort of modernist, uh, I don't even know how to say it. But anyway, I write books, I read books, and I get these hankerings sometimes to find out what's going on in parts of the world, and um, I have... My wife and I watched both of our kids go to Maine schools and public schools, and they had a pretty good time, a very good time sometimes. And um, we wanted to know what life was actually like for kids. We had to police them and may have forced them to do homework. And there was a lot of homework, and what is that all about? And we just had thoughts as parents. Um, I went to uh, an alternative high school as a kid, an alternative, very, very permissive school. I didn't have much much that I needed to do. So all those things were sort of bouncing around in my head. That's what led, That background is what led me to write this book, Substitute. And you do start the book by recounting some of those experiences from your own formal education before you became a substitute for a month and, and wrote this memoir from that time. I'm wondering if you could share some of those experiences you had as a kid and how you think they informed your perspective both before and during your project. Sure. Well, I I mean, obviously when you're a little kid, you don't, you're not taking notes for some future nonfiction book you're going to write. But I was a, I was a, um, I was an elementary student in the sixties and there was very, very minimal homework and school was, for me, it was kind of fun. Um, I mean, there was the occasional unhappiness, I guess, but the work was not difficult. And I'm not to say that I was some sort of precocious person. The work simply wasn't there. There wasn't a lot of homework. And in middle school also. And then in high school, um, the the School Without Walls, which is a public 
School in Rochester, New York, um, was founded in, 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 I think it was 1971, and I was part of the first class of 125 students who were there, or the first group. We were chosen by lottery. And it was fascinating because there were really, it was very, very free. Um, there was, there was, you had to write up a proposal, you had to say what you were interested in doing, but beyond that, you, every student had a lot of free time. We were all given bus tokens, um, which we were supposed to use to go around, because it's the school without walls. The city is our school, you know? Um, and so we had, I had a math class in an attic of a church, and I had a biology class in a, in a community college and stuff like that. I, it was really an amazing uh, level of trust that they gave us. And at the time, I was sort of rebellious, and I thought, I want to be taught stuff. I want to be. I want to be. I want to go to a class where I have have assignments, you know, where there's tests and where there's a class ranking and valedictorians. You know, I kind of yearned for all that. Lockers. Um, there was none of that. It was just what you want to learn will have to come from yourself. And um, and now I'm very very grateful. For that experience, because it was it was really an interesting thing to have in the back of my mind when I taught and had to teach as a substitute teacher in a quote normal American high school. And you also mentioned uh, your experiences as a parent. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to the similarities and differences being an adult who's dealing with schools maybe from the outside versus one who's working in the schools every day. Well, I think. Real, honest-to-God teachers, people who have gone and gotten a credential and everything, have an entirely different experience than I, I did. I am an interloper. I'm a person who knows, fundamentally knows very little. I don't know the kids' names. I don't know the, uh, I, I don't know, uh, I don't know how the school works as a substitute teacher. Um, and that, which is not so far away from what it's like as a, um, as a parent, actually, is your kids are your one point of contact with this class. So the class mm-hmm. becomes this sort of fascinating, shadowy presence, and you you hear about certain kids um, because your own children mention them by name. But what I think is missing, and what I think what I was trying to supply, is is not the professional teacher's perspective, which is very valuable, obviously, um, and and not the educational theorist's perspective. I am trying to supply the perspective of the kids on the ground. And that, being a substitute teacher in a way, because I'm below, hierarchically below the students, mm-hmm. I'm below the custodian as a substitute teacher. I am, on the, I am at the bottom. There is something valuable about that, about being able to look around and say, what is going on? What are these kids actually saying? What, of all the stuff they're being taught, what are they actually remembering? You know, what three to five percent of what is being taught will they ever recall later in life? You know, so that was part of what it, the goal was to create a kind of core sample of American education based on one uh, relatively poor school district in Maine, um, and and sort of convey all, all, what life is like for 
kids in all these different age groups and classes and how long their day is. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to your takeaways from observing and interacting with these students. Um, what did you notice that, that interested you? Well, I first want to say that, um, that it is useful to, 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 to have takeaways, but that what I, I write novels as well as nonfiction and what a novel gives you is a voyage through something. And, you know, let's say it's, uh, mm -hmm. let's say it's a, a, a novel set on an offshore oil rig or something. And, you know, you learn, you, you could say in the end, well, it's, the fact is that life is very difficult on an offshore oil rig and it's, uh, you know, you get dirty and those are the takeaways. But what the book is offering is the immersive experience of being on the oil rig. And, um, my goal in writing this book was to give parents, I, and I, I honestly think that give parents and teachers an immersive feeling of what it was like that day. Even teachers who are professionally doing this every day, they may be um, a fifth grade teacher or an 11th grade read, language arts teacher. They don't know what it's like for the other classes. I am giving, I am giving, I hope everybody something that they need to chew on and think about um, if they want to come up with uh, recommendations and further policy things. So my takeaway is uh, it's very basic. It's very simple. It is that um, it's that the day is long and that students are brilliant and difficult and funny and strange and they do completely unexpected things because each one of them is figuring out a, a unique, a personal way to guide themselves through the slalom course of their days, their Mondays through Fridays. And that is a very difficult and amazing thing that they have to do. And the, and the really kind of incredible thing that feels like something that you, you, that is more than just a, a fact, the fact that students have no choice, that they have to go to school, is something that kept coming back to me. I would say, you know, how do you get through that? Well, I remember asking one kid, how do you get through this? Because he was a smart kid. He was dejected. He was in, I think, uh, 10th grade, maybe. And he looked up at me, pulled out one earbud, and he said, music. You know, and that just, so just having some pieces of knowledge of how do kids figure out their path through this these institutions. And I would say the majority of them, especially in high school, are not having fun and they are not engaged. And so they, the, the, the fact that they have no choice is something that they really, that really makes them unhappy. So what, where is the source of their unhappiness? How can we fix this? How can we create more surprise and delight and, um, uh, I don't know, practical knowledge that kids can come up with that will make their lives easier. I think, I think we need to change things radically. I think the day has to be shorter. 
the day has to start later and has to be shorter. All this stuff about rigor and grit is all very well, and of course we value rigor and grit in some ways, but to a kid who's 18 assignments behind and who is in a certain state of despair to the point where they just be, they've become a permanent jokester, all that stuff means absolutely nothing. So listen to what that kid is doing. Pay attention to what those kids are. Pay attention to how a class works as an ecosystem. And then after you've done that, either by reading this book, which I'm not saying it's a great book, but it is a book that's doing something different than other education books, or either do that or work as a substitute teacher yourself or a real teacher and then talk about how we should do something with education. It's the policymakers need to know how difficult it is to get across some of the curricular innovations that they're coming up with. What kinds of responses have you heard from teachers and other people interested in educational policy? Are they responding in the way that uh, you might expect? Well, one th one really um, great thing is that teachers have been coming to the readings and the panel discussions and things that I've been giving as part of this tour that I'm going on. And, and um, so I say, how many how many teachers are in the audience? And sometimes it's a third of the audience are teachers, and they so they're curious about me, and they want to know if I am, you know, a critical voice or a friendly voice, mm -hmm. or what. Um, and I, um, and some of them, uh, uh, because of, of, of a piece I wrote in the New York Times Magazine section, which was not in the book at all, um, but is but is uh, a more polemical piece. This is more of a "this is what happened." Listen to these kids talk, kind of book. But the piece in the New York Times Magazine was more, um, "My God, this is a this is there's a lot of tedium here." And the piece was called Fortress of Tedium. Um, I think they want to know that I, I, um, I am not a, a hostile person. And I'm not. I really, first of all, I think teachers should be paid more. There's no question. What, one of the things that I felt was that the days were really exhausting. They're very exhausting for substitute teachers in, in a different way because substitutes don't know what they're doing, and so they're kind of flailing. So there's a lot of inefficient energy loss throughout the day. But for real teachers, they are there Monday through Friday, and that is a different kind of rhythm. I was I taught substituted for a total of 28 days over a whole semester. So I had, you know, if I had a really bad day, and I thought this is the worst day of my life, I could then recover. Mm -hmm. So what their reaction is, are you kidding? This guy... Some, sometimes the reaction is, this guy has the temerity to say, based on 28 days in the classroom to come up with a book. And it, it, that isn't the intent of the book, is to say, uh, I'm, I am going to offer solutions based on 28 days. I am saying, yes, it's 28 days. Even if it were three days or five days, what I've done is record what actually happened. And it's useful, I think, not just for parents and and kids themselves to see what happens in a class, but it's useful for teachers to see 
how they're, the kind of words that they say, the way they keep order in a class. It's useful to, for them to see what that looks like on the page. It's quite surprising how much time, in even a very well-run class, how much time, huge percentage of time, is kept, is, is spent scolding people who are acting up in some ways. I'm not talking about in my classes, because obviously a substitute, there's always chaos. But in the real classes taught by seasoned teachers, it's an enormous percentage of time that is spent scolding kids who are wigging out, zoning out, not caught up. It's just an incredible amount of time. So if, if one of the useful things I hoped in the book was come to a chapter, let's say you're a sixth grade teacher, you read this chapter about sixth grade and you think, wow, that is, that is a true picture of my life. Or that is not a true picture of my life. I'm hoping anybody, any teacher, whether or not they agree with me, when I have some sort of somewhat subversive, radical, I suppose, ideas about shortening the day. But any teacher would read this book, and I'm hoping, I think, I genuinely think, and, and get things from it, whether or not you agreed with my opinions about what should happen with education. And I think that there are many teachers who don't know a lot about what it's like to be a substitute. They interact very little with the people who take over their classroom on those days when they're out. And so I'm wondering if we can talk about that at least briefly. Um, did you receive any kind of training or feedback during your time as a sub? Well, there was a training. So the requirements are the high school diploma and the, and the criminal record. There can be no criminal record. Um, and, but the, I did take a six-evening training class, which was very helpful, actually. And some of the principals and, and uh, guidance counselors were very inspiring and, and, and had lots of wisdom to impart. Um, use humor, not the hammer, was one thing I remembered a principal saying. Uh, an elementary school principal, really wonderful woman. Um, so the training was actually pretty good, and, and generally... You know, you get the call at 5, 5.30 in the morning, ringtone, hello, would you like to be a fifth-grade teacher? Uh, I'll give it a shot. You know, that's the kind <laughs> of rhythm. And then I get into a car and just drive like a bat out of Sweden and go to uh, some elementary school, show up. They give me a name tag, and I'm in the class. And, and then there's this kind of um, strange thing where the kids walk into class and they do this double take. Oh, are you the... Sub, and then there's sort of this <laughs> wonderful, joyous, depending on the kid, malevolent or you know sympathetic. Some kids say, "Oh God, one one boy, uh, Mr. Baker, I have two words for you: good luck." You know, so uh, a lot of self knowledge about how the class is going to is going to happen. But often the teachers next door would also come by and say, "Hi, I'm I'm just mm -hmm. I'm so and so. I teach math next door or something." Um, and I, uh, this is kind of a rambunctious class. You might want to make sure you put your thumb down them right away so they know, or they'll, they'll, they'll say that there are two kids in particular you might want to watch out for. So they, the, the teachers, uh, the neighboring teachers would, um, watch out for me. And if the class really, really fell apart, um, there were there were a few times embarrassing horribly embarrassing times when 
the real teacher would have to come by mm-hmm. and say, ladies and gentlemen, and give the speech, the terrifying speech, and, you know, lower the boom and all that. So the teachers were very helpful, actually. I mean, I don't think the, the school district that I taught in should have done anything different. The fact is that there's an extreme need for substitute teachers because real teachers have, they have, I mean, there's teacher burnout, which you know about, I'm sure, but there's also sort of micro burnout, you know, which is a, a Thursday and you just can't face it and you feel bad and you're sick, or there's training. There's just uh, there. There are always reasons why there have to be substitute teachers coming in in large numbers. So every state, or many states, have shortages. It's not a, a job that people want to do. Many people, but it is actually. I, I to, was. It's. I mean, of course, I like being a writer, but being a writer, you do not feel needed in the same way. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing that I understand about teaching, why do teachers want to teach? It's because it's totally unpredictable, and you don't know what kids are going to say that next day and what they're going to find funny. What they're, <laughs> you just don't know. And, and so getting the call and saying, we need you for second grade, we need you for kindergarten, all ages that I would not have felt comfortable teaching, um, that, was the, that was the excitement of it, the unpredictability. And I think more people should be become substitutes. Certainly, all of the fancy educational theorists who have simply gone up the ladder and become, you know, teachers and theorists of education, those people should actually work as a as a substitute teacher if they haven't, because they will have fun sometimes. They will be miserable other times, but they will come out of it humming a different tune. We've almost reached the end of our time, so I just wanted to ask you a couple more questions. First, Mm -hmm. what are three other books that you might recommend to our listeners if they've enjoyed Substitute or our conversation today? Wow. Uh, Well, I read in high school the book that kind of blew me away and I thought was delightful was Up the Down Staircase by Belle Kaufman, a novel, but based on, and she was initially, I think, a substitute teacher and then. Um, a, a, a non-substitute teacher, uh, funny, charming, full of, it's a novel, but it's got so much of of the real texture of, of big high school, a, a big urban high school. Um, so that's a, that's a beautiful book that I, it had a strong um, impression on me. Uh, while I was working on this book, I liked reading Nell Nodding's um, Philosophy of Education, which is a completely, it pulls apart from Up the Down Staircase, but it's a very thoughtful book on, on a sort of historical survey, but also a heartfelt kind of manifesto about what what good teaching should be like. And she's written other books, Nell Nodding at Stanford, um, I remember reading the way it's supposed to be. That's mm-hmm. an amazing book. There are tons of there are tons of good education books. There's only one that is 700 pages of what actually happens in the classroom, which is why I think that that's what I have to offer. This is this is what actually goes on. Very little theory. Very little in the way of recommendation. This is what kids say. This is how teachers react. This is what the school looks like. Live through this with me. 
This is an immersive experience I'm offering. It was immersive. It was life-changing for me. Even though it was was 28 days, it was life-changing. And I, I really honestly feel that it's one of the better things I've done with my life. Can you tell us a little bit about your next project? Uh, well, I'm always working on... I've got a... I'm writing something about the Cold War. That's all I want to say about it. I, I, I find that if I talk about something before I get done with it, that the pressure of of wanting to be finished goes away. So I'm sort of secretive about what the next uh, the next thing is, bizarrely enough. Not that I think it's, you know, that it, that it would be a bad thing for other people to know, but it just I feel like a deflated balloon if I if I get into it because I start to get excited about the thing and then I think, oh, I've already told it. I've already given it away. You know? So it's about the Cold War. Well, we look forward to finding out more about it in the coming months. And uh, I want to direct our listeners to your piece in the New York Times you mentioned earlier. Nicholson, uh, I want to thank you for being on our show today. I've really enjoyed it. It's been my total pleasure. Thank you. 